Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, outside of creation, have chosen to come and be with us. Your word says that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you are there among them. Lord, thank you for this morning. We just dedicate this time to you, Lord. I, I dedicate these words that are on these papers. Lord, I just ask that anything that is of you, Holy Spirit, that it would find its um, its mark, and anything that's not would just blow away like those dandelion fluffs. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, well, it's that quintessential Hallmark holiday, Mother's Day. And, uh, um, yeah, you can go ahead and put up the first slide. Molly called me up a couple of months ago, and for some reason she thought maybe I'd have some thoughts on the subject. Um, You can go ahead and put up the first slide, the picture. Yeah, so that's our family. Ryan and I and our family have been a part of Thrive for about eight and a half years, Ryan and I are about to celebrate our 27th anniversary in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And we have nine children. And if you've thought I miscounted and missed one, that handsome young man over kind of my left shoulder is our son-in-law, Nick. He's married to our daughter, Mia. So um, we didn't start out planning to have a baseball team for our family. There's a story in uh, our journey and how we got there. I'm not going to share that story today. Maybe Ryan will share some of that um, at another time. Um, But, you know, this kind of crew used to be pretty common, actually, two, three generations ago, and then going back probably for millennia. Um, But these days, we're a little bit more of an oddity. We're kind of a curiosity. And... Um, so people say things to me like, oh, you must be superwoman to have all those kids. Or, man, you've got to have an amazing amount of patience. Or Sarah even said this to me this morning. <laughs> she said, you must know it all. You must have figured it out. Um, sorry to burst your bubble. I have not <laughs> figured it all out. My, my children will attest. Um, but... The Lord has been working on me over the years, and he's been showing me something really um, particular in the last couple of years that I want to share with you today, and maybe there's something there for you, too. So a little bit about myself. I'm a firstborn. I married a firstborn. Renan and I were dating. My mom warned me. She said, maybe we might have some conflicts over that, and I was like, what do you mean? And then we got married, and I was like, oh, that's what she meant. Uh, We're both take charge kind of people. We want to be in control. Um, So in our early years of marriage, that definitely did play out in some power struggles. I do think that we've kind of come to a place where we have gotten into a good dance rhythm. Um, But, you know, that firstbornness, I really do think that our birth order plays into how our personality manifests. It's not the only thing, and of course there are exceptions, but, um, you know, there's kind of that nature-nurture stuff, but 
it, I think it definitely has affected me. Um, my daughter, Hannah, she's going to Grand Canyon University down in Phoenix. And this last semester, she took a whole class on personality. I think it was maybe your favorite class. was. Yeah, so all the students in her class, they took a whole slew of personality tests, and then they would analyze them. Um, when Ryan and I were growing up in the church, we went to church together. That's how we met. But when we were like maybe middle school, early high school, kind of late 80s, early 90s, the adults at our church did this personality test that assigned everybody like an animal. So you were either a lion or um, an otter or a retriever or a beaver, right? Maybe some of you guys took that, remember it. Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. Um, well, Ryan and I recently took the Enneagram. That's the next slide. Um, that's another personality test. It was kind of like popular a few years ago. Ryan and I are a little bit late to that bandwagon, but we just took it a few years ago uh, or a few months ago. And um, so it divides personalities into nine types, and then it gives it a number. So um, my type is number one. It's like, oh, I like that. I'm number one. <laughs> so when you take the test, it, it generates this, um, sorry, my hair is getting in my mouth. It generates a report for you. So this is a little bit of what my report said. It says, generally ones are conscientious, sensible, responsible, idealistic, ethical, serious, self-disciplined, orderly, and feel personally obligated to improve their world and themselves, and I would add, and their children. <laughs> and I thought, not bad. I'm like, I like those. That glove fits. Uh, but that's not all. It goes on to say, ones get into conflicts by being opinionated, impatient, irritable, rigid, perfectionistic, critical, sarcastic, and judgmental. Uh. <laughs> Ryan and I sometimes would listen to this teacher's name's Bodie Bacham, and he would say, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. Ouch. And I said to Ryan, I don't think I'm a perfectionist. And he's like, uh, yeah, you are. And I didn't think I was a perfectionist because my house is never put together. It's always dirty. It's all, and even before we had kids, it's not just the kids. It's, oh my gosh, our house was so disgusting when we were first married. And I thought, well, how could I be a perfectionist if I am okay with all of this bleh in my house? But I started to think about it more and I realized, you know what? Maybe I am, especially about most things. I feel like there is a right way to do it, and I want it done right. I'm a rule follower. I read the recipes. I follow them. I read the directions for things always. If you give me a task, just like give me a bullet list. I'm going to check it off, and I'll get it done. I am not this kind of a person who just like flies by the seat of their pants. And so as I continued to think about this, I realized, you know, that is how I originally approached my parenting. You know, when we started having babies, we were pretty young. Um, and I had nannied in college. And my mom and my grandmother, her mother before her, were Montessori teachers, and I had absorbed their wisdom. And then when Charlie and Mia, our oldest two, were babies, I went and got my Montessori certification, and I knew children. 
and I made sure that Ryan knew that I knew what I was doing and that I was doing it right and that a lot of times he was maybe not. And you can imagine how well that went over. And as our kids got started, you know, they were getting out of the baby years and the toddler years and they were starting to get a little older. One of the things that was so important to me to get right was their Christian discipleship. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. You all know that one. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Hear, my son and daughter, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And finally, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yes, 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 yes. Parents, we are called to train up our children. We are called to teach our children about who God is, what he's like, and how to worship, honor, and love him. It's not the school's responsibility. I know that's a big shocker. Even if it's a Christian school, it's not even the church's responsibility. It's our responsibility as parents. And if your children are grown up and you feel like maybe you've missed that boat, don't worry, we're going to get to that. There's still a role for you. So taking all of this and fitting this with my driven black and white personality, I thought that discipling my children was kind of like a formula. You read Bible stories, you take them to church every week, you mix in some worship music, sprinkle some youth group, and bingo, they're all going to be pastors and missionaries. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's the way it should work. When Mia, our second, was little, she was four, I think about the time Ryan asked her, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, a church girl. And Ryan's like, well, what's that? She's like, a girl who sits in church. And I thought, Chuck, we're doing this right. Right? She was so cute. So cute. She also wanted to invite us to her birthday wedding when she was four. So cute. So, you know, when children are little, they're kind of like little ducklings, right? They, they follow us along and follow us around what they're doing, what we're doing. And even if they don't want to do what we want them to do, like, oh, you don't want to put your shoes on, or you don't want to turn off the TV, or you don't want to go to bed, well, with a smile on your face, tough toodles, we're doing it. And you just pick up your toddler and take them where they need to go, right? But it's... But most of the time, they actually want to do what we're doing. They want to be with us. They want to follow us, right? But as they get older, sometimes it's not so easy. It's not so easy with a teenager or a young adult, right? And as my children started to get older, 
I started focusing on their behavior because that's what I could see was on the outside. And I found myself wanting more and more to control that behavior, to kind of keep them in this little box, right? Of course, I know that it's not our behavior. It's not our works that earns us a place in heaven. Ephesians 2 is really clear about that. At the same time, Jesus in Matthew 7 says, you shall know them, his disciples, by their works. So I was having this inner conflict. And remember that personality profile, the Enneagram, that I read to you, and those not so great character traits? This is when criticalness entered. Judgment. Oftentimes I was focusing on what I called fruit and not so much on the inner part, the root, what was in their heart. Maybe this morning you're not a mother. Maybe you don't have children. Or maybe your children are grown. And you might be thinking, oh, this is all nice, cute, funny stories, but I don't really relate to what you're talking about. But I would wager that everyone in this room who has given their heart to Jesus has someone in their life that they want desperately to know the love and peace that we have experienced by walking with our Lord Jesus. Somebody in their life, maybe it's an extended family member, maybe it's a close friend or a coworker. We do still have a role to play in their lives, too. So now I'm going to start getting to what the Lord has been showing me over the last couple of years. And um, I'm going to weave in a little bit of the Gospel of John. Because as you remember, if you were here last week, Ryan kicked off our summer series. We're going through the Gospel of John. And um, I'm going to focus in on one of my absolute favorite people in the Gospels, and that's John the Baptist. So a little bit of background on John the Baptist. Um, His parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were older, probably past childbearing years. You can go ahead and flip up that next slide with the picture. Um, So Zechariah was a priest, and he, um, you know, annually would have his priestly duties to go and do in the temple. So he's at the temple, and he's in there by himself, and the angel Gabriel shows up. And this isn't just some no-name angel. This is the same angel that is going to come to Mary just a few months later and announce to her that the Son of God is going to be coming through her. So this same angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah, and he says you're going to have a son. And that in and of itself was pretty miraculous because they were past childbearing years, right? And then Gabriel says to him, and this son that you're going to have is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now this is significant because the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on all believers yet at this time. That doesn't happen until you know Jesus is crucified and resurrected and ascends into heaven and then And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out, right? But the Holy Spirit is active in history up to this point. But 
and he does fill people, but they're few and far between. And oftentimes it's not even necessarily for their whole life. It's like for, you know, for, for specific purposes. Joseph, you know, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, Joshua, the leader of the Israelites after Moses. The judge, some of the judges, um, King David are all examples. But it was not, it was not a common thing. So not only does John, this son who's going to be born, get filled with the Holy Spirit, but he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, from the beginning of his life. I mean, that says to me, he's got to have a special part in God's story. And this is what um, the angel says of John in Luke 1, 16 and 17. And he will go before him, meaning the Son of God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that's the background on John. Um, If you want to, you can open your Bibles for this next part to the Gospel of John. I like having like physical Bible, but you can pull it up on your phone if you want. I like having it like right in front of you, but we're going to have this scripture up on the screen too. But um, we're going to go to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. And it says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He was quoting there from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which, by the way, had been written hundreds of years earlier. And he's claiming to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. What an incredible role he gets to play. So John, he has this vibrant ministry out in the wilderness. You know, he's out there by the Jordan River, and people are coming out to him in droves to hear him preach and then to get baptized. And there are a couple things that I kind of pulled out of this interaction. You know, so he's out there with his ministry. All these people are coming out, and the priests and the Levites—they're—they're they're taking notice of what's going on. So they go to find out what's what's the deal. And this is what I notice about this interaction between John and this group of leaders. And number one, that's John was privileged because he got to be the one to point to the Lamb. And number two, he wasn't Jesus. So here's how that relates to me. Years ago, Ryan and I went to a conference, and the teacher said, raise up your children as if their salvation depends on you, with the full knowledge that it rests squarely on Jesus. That was a hard balance for me to make. I thought I had done a pretty decent job at the first part, you know, of teaching my children about Jesus. Maybe my kids have a different opinion about that, but I sure put a lot of energy into it. But what I had a harder time accepting was that I was not Jesus. I can't. 
can't save my kids. It's only the good and loving God of the universe who can breathe the Holy Spirit into them. I'm going to say that again. It's only the good and great, wonderful creator of the universe who can breathe the breath of life through the Holy Spirit into my kids. There's an incredible amount of trust that goes into that. So if you're in the midst of raising littles and middles, this is the season to teach your children about Jesus, to teach them about the good shepherd. And for others, if the Lord opens a door for you to share hope and good news with that adult child or extended family member, neighbor, co-worker who's searching for meaning in this life, then you are getting to participate in pointing them to Jesus, just like John the Baptist did, in the same spirit. But what if that adult child has no, it doesn't have any desire to walk with God? What if that brother, sister, cousin, close friend just seems dead set on living a life apart from God. Now what? What's our role? We can't just pick them up like when they were toddlers, right? So what did John the Baptist do? So, you know, he had this ministry out in the wilderness, but his outspokenness kind of gotten him into trouble at one point. So there was a king, a local king at the time. His name was Herod. And he was married to a woman named Herodias. And John kind of said, you shouldn't have that wife because Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. And John said, it's not right that you have your brother's wife. And Herodias got offended. She got mad. And so she she wanted him killed. But he got put into prison instead. In Mark chapter 6, 19 and 20, it says, And Herodias had a grudge against John, and he wanted him put to death. She wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So he was in prison for a while. His, his ministry out in the wilderness is over at this point. So he's in prison. And what does he do now? I mean, this was like his whole life's purpose, right? And it's been cut off. So it does say in Mark that... um, Hold on, I'm going to go back a second. Well, anyway, he's in prison, and Herod goes and listens to him preach. It does say that in Mark. So he's at least preaching to one. But he had um, some time, probably by himself, in his cell. I will say, spoiler alert, Herodias does get her wish and has his head delivered to her on a platter. But there is this time where he's sitting in prison by himself. So what is he doing? The Bible doesn't actually really say what he did. Um, But I'm going to speculate that he probably spent a good amount of that time in prayer. And... An artist had the same idea, because here he is in his prison cell. And if he was praying, I imagine that he was praying that his ministry would continue even without him. That the people that he had been called to, the Jews, that they would 
continue to come to repentance and come to know the one that he had been pointing to, Jesus. And guess what? That's exactly what did happen. Many, many came to know the Lord and to follow Jesus. So all of these stories that I've been telling, all of these threads have come down to this one point, and this is what God's been showing me. It's prayer. The power and importance of prayer, and in particular for me, prayer and letting go. Um, have you guys watched The War Room? That movie, it's a kind of a sappy Christian movie. But there's this one character in the movie that I absolutely love. Her name's Miss Clara. That's on the next slide. There she is. She, it is worth going to YouTube and finding some scenes with her in it. I just absolutely love her. So Miss Clara in the movie, you know, she's an older woman, and she's made some pretty big mistakes in her life, and she's suffered significant loss. And she finally comes to the point where she's realizing the importance and power of prayer, and she goes after it. And mountains move through her prayers. God uses her to, to change incredible circumstances. I want to be like her. My mom and my mother-in-law are both here today. I'm going to get choked up now. They, they are prayer warriors like Miss Clara. They have been an example to me of what it looks like to be a mother in prayer. My mom gets up. She's the first one up with the first light, and she has her place at the kitchen table, and she has her Bible open, and she has her devotional open, and then she has her journal, and she has, she has a whole library of filled journals, and she pours her heart out to the Lord in those journals. You know who she's praying for? It's her children. My mother-in-law isn't really a morning person. <laughs> she's more of a middle-of-the-night person. When she can't sleep, she's up and she's praying. As she goes through her day, she's praying. When she's folding the laundry, she's praying. She prays for her sons and for her daughters-in-law, for her grandchildren. Now she's paying, praying for her grandchildren's spouses, and eventually there will be some great-grandchildren, hopefully. She'll be praying. I want to be like them. I used to think that I was too busy to pray. You know, I was busy raising my kids, running around, doing all the things. And I just had time for little prayers, blips here and there, just throwing up there. But I'm coming to realize that spending time with the one who has the power to fill the seas, to raise the mountains and to spread the heavens across the skies, spending time with him is the most impactful thing I can have on my kids. Keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. My mom said this to me the other day. No matter what is going on around me, keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus in my prayers and then expecting him to answer because he will. That's the kind of prayer that I'm talking about. So, Michi, you can start 
making your way up here. I have one more story about a mother in her tenacious prayers. Her name is Monica, and she lived about 300 years after Jesus, and she had a son. And her one desire was that he would know and follow God. And he, on the other hand, had <laughs> the exact opposite. He, had, he wanted nothing to do with God. He was brilliant, and he went after worldly knowledge. He sat and he studied with all the secular philosophers of the time. He also was very focused on his own self-gratification, doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Monica did all she could to try to convince him of the reality of Jesus, but she was no match for his intellect, or so he thought. He thought he knew it all. And she realized that if there was going to be a change, it had to come directly from God. And so she decided to dedicate herself to prayer and fasting, and she did it for years. And her son's autobiography says that she wept before the Lord for his salvation continually. And guess what? The Lord heard her prayers. The Holy Spirit reached down into those circumstances and changed them. And he became, that son became one of the most influential theologians and writers in the early church. So influential that we're still reading his writings today. His name is Augustine. And it all started because of a mother's prayers. I want to be like her. 